So probably um, it's good, I think, to remind us of Christmas. I think especially as we were picking out songs, it was one that um, I wanted specifically as it kind of hits into the message today. We talk about peace. Um, and I probably should explain a little more. When uh, For those who don't know, Aaron Futrell's in uh, out of town. And uh, it's just uh, one of the reminders, unfortunately, though, sometimes that we are... Uh, not at peace at times, and we have men and women who are actively serving on our behalf, and um, it's just a good reminder uh, seeing you this morning, man. Um, I just appreciate uh, all you guys are doing for us on our behalf so that we um, can be here, um, and uh, it's a sacrifice we, we really appreciate, and so I wanted you to know that uh, first and foremost, and if you look around, you realize um, this is uh, uh, probably a pretty hostile time. Um, in the United States, it's a little more hostile just because we're, you know, it seems as if uh, the adults in the room have left, and uh, it's, it's pretty much kindergartners running, running right now. Um, and, and, and a lot of our piece is a lot of more he said, she said stuff, and there's not a whole lot of um, really sometimes, unfortunately, substance behind a lot of different things that are, we're, we're seeing in politics and things today. But unfortunately, um, there are some very hard things that are happening around the world, Um, in the United States, I think sometimes gets sheltered by some of them. Um, but, uh, there's news, um, all over the world, especially Africa and, uh, Haiti itself that, um, there is definitely anything but peace, uh, happening at this point. And so you look around this world and you think, how in the world is there peace? What are you talking about peace and goodwill? And how, how does that fit into Christmas? And specifically, um, how does that fit into where we are today? in 2019, um, I want to kind of take us back. If we think of difficult times and stresses and things like that, I want to take us back to uh, the history of what was happening in the world when Christ was born. Um, kind of the, the powers that be that, that were reigning at that point. And so if you go back into AD actually 31, it's probably the, the furthest back I want to go this morning, there was a guy by the name of Gaius Octavian Theronius, uh, later known as Augustus Caesar, and he rises to power in Rome by killing his last opponent, uh, which was Antony, who was actually one of his, uh, uh, was one of his, um, people that was with him, that was on his uh, side originally, and then Antony uh, eventually turned into an enemy, and uh, he realized that the only way to really keep Rome moving was to take Antony out, and then in AD 27, only years later, the Roman Senate makes a move that would change the course of history for Rome, and also for the country at that point, and they declare Octavian to be the first emperor changing his name to Augustus, uh, and Caesar was carried over from the other. And so his real name was Octavian Theranius, but you would know him as Augustus Caesar. And this change of his name to Augustus was actually a new title. Uh, it had never been given before. Uh, it was uh, a new thing as far as the, um, the, uh, the rulers that be in Rome at that point. And the new title could be rendered or translated as exalted one, or the illustrious one. And this declaration would move him into a state of being godlike. It was a godlike status that they were putting upon him at, that, at this point. And they were declaring him to be not only ruler of Rome, but also to be deity 
and, and to say that to come against Rome was to come against the deity. And Augustus Caesar was then formed, and you'll see many other Augustuses throughout your history, uh, but you would see that it started with this guy here. And it was during this title change that not only did they give him the power of sovereign and deity, but they also decided it'd be a great idea to give Octavian all military power. It, for, for a while, it was in a Senate and, and it was controlled. But now in the history, they gave all military power to this emperor who they would call in their godlike status. And with this military power, he was pleased to do whatever he wanted in Rome. If somebody acted up, he could take them out because he had the military at a moment's notice. When, whenever there was an uprising, he could quell it quickly because there was nobody else to come against them. And so the Republic of Rome the Republic would almost disappear. And so now there was one God, Octavian, who had legislative power, religious power, and now military power to rule. And Octavian, or Augustus Caesar, was who we read about in Luke chapter 2, and he was the man at the helm when Christ was born. So if you have your Bibles, join me in Luke chapter 2. We're going to spend our time as we intro our series in, in this peace and goodwill in Luke chapter 2. And here's my goal this morning. My goal this morning is not to give you a bunch of how-tos. That's going to come in the next couple weeks. My goal this morning is just to lay out and define this idea of peace and goodwill. So, so if you leave today frustrated, and you're like, he didn't give us anything to really do or apply and things like that, um, that's okay. Keep coming back. We're, we're going to get more of that as we kind of head into the next couple weeks together. But this morning, I just want to set the groundwork for this idea of peace and good work or goodwill. I want to kind of see where it came from and kind of to explain it, define it, and then see how it kind of plays out in our lives today. So with Augustus Caesar in control, needless to say, it was a time of fear, not much peace, uh, oppression, and yet favor if you were a Roman citizen. And so if you were a Roman citizen, life was good. If you were not, then you were always in constant fear, especially as a Jewish person back then. Uh, they were allowed to be in Rome, but they really weren't seen as an equal status in Rome. And so enter into this, we see in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, these verses. In those days, in the days just described, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius uh, was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. What happened was that uh, now that he had all military power, uh, how many are uh, freshmen or soon-to-be freshmen boys in the room? Any freshmen boys? close to getting there, okay? You would not be here today uh, because you get to graduate from eighth grade, and then once you graduate from eighth grade, you're not asked what you get to do in the Roman society. You just automatically get enrolled into the army. You just, you just, it's a gift. You get to serve Rome. And so whenever you were turned 14, all the boys would just disappear, and all the girls in high school would be like, there's no boys around anymore because they're all gone, because they would all be enlisted in military service. And so at age 14 was when they drafted drafted. <laughs> That's a nice word uh, compared to what Rome did. Uh, they made sure you served. And so from age 14 on, you were serving. Well, it was interesting because the Jews were exempt from this. And so as you see Christ grow into age 14, you're like, why didn't he serve? Well, the Jews were exempt from this, and so they didn't have to. But as a Roman citizen, every 14-year-old boy would be sent into the military 
just to make sure that they had the military might they needed. So in order to understand how many boys they could gather into the army, they took the census. And so they take this census, and they, they're trying to figure out, okay, so how many can we grab? And so this is kind of what's happening here. This is the census they would have known about. And, and Joseph uh, went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was at a house in the lineage of David to be, uh, I'm sorry, lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for them to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Pretty typical Christmas story. We, we know this story well. But I want to focus in on this next part, and this idea of good will and peace that comes to this earth. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So we, we've gone from this, this scene of this emperor who is willing to take power and willing to take it at a moment's notice. We've seen that he is now taking the census to try and make sure that he gets every boy registered. In the midst of this turmoil and unrest, God, in his sovereignty, decides to appear to shepherds out in a field, keeping watch over their flock. Not your typical first intro, but one that we will see is very, very important. So he sends uh, these angels to this field, and the angel appeared before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Yeah, Uh, I, I think that's because we don't typically understand all that's meant by this army of angels. And whenever there's an angel appearing in Scripture, or whenever really God kind of steps into the scene, there, there tends to be this reaction of fear and trembling, and, and a rightful one, because we serve a God who is all-powerful. I think we, we can sometimes forget that in the holiday season, because, you know, it's all about the manger scene and, the, and, and things like that. We forget what preceded the manger, and what preceded the manger was the glory of God seen by human beings. The glory of God revealed in, in, through his angels here. And he says to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. If you, highlight, if you have your Bibles, if you're good at this and you, you're okay with it, you can highlight and circle all the people. Because that's interesting. This, this is God stepping into human history and he says, this will be great joy for all people. Not just the Jewish people, but for all people, this will be Tremendous news. And not just all people on planet Earth at that point. This is the amazing thing that we realize in 2019 that they wouldn't have realized then. This is good news of great joy for all people in the past and all people in the future and all the people that will go beyond us. This is good news for all people. And his first words to them are fear not. It's a term that's actually used about 360 times in the Bible as a command. Fear not, almost one for every single day of the year. Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. And, and there's this direct command to our, to, from God to his people to say, fear not, I am still reigning, I am still in control. Many of you have been through uh, this last month and a half, I've had many di- different, different conversations and some difficult conversations with, with, with many of us in this room, uh, across the board, 
that it's been a busy time, like jobs, like seem to be a really busy time in the last month or two. And the stresses of, of job have been very, very hard or stresses of family or there's just been a lot of different stresses that have been coming up from September until now. And, and I just want you to know, like, we all as a family need to rally towards one another and say, fear not. This is, this is normal. Well, it doesn't feel very normal. If you knew my situation and the difficulties that I'm facing, it doesn't feel peaceful and it doesn't feel normal. Let me just remind us, the scripture tells us again and again, we serve a God who says, fear not, 360 times, almost one for every single day, fear not for I am in control. Because he then continues and says, what is this great joy? What is this thing that is for all people? And he continues, he says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this is important because we just talked about uh, Augustus Caesar, and we just talked about how he was now ruling over this thing. Amazingly, God comes into this Christmas story, and he says, born unto you today is this, in the city of David. So first off, he says, hey, King David's lineage is going to continue on. That was a huge thing for the Jewish people, and they knew that he was talking about a Messiah was to come, and a king would come out of the line of David, and the king from the line of David would rule for eternity. So when God says to them, these shepherds, they probably may not have known, but to us on the outside, we could see it clearly, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. In other words, what he's saying here is all that worry and stress, and even the worry and stress that we carry day to day and day in and day out, the reality is that there is a king who is reigning, and there is a king who is in charge. A king is named and a ruler is given a title, who is Christ the Lord. So against Augustus Caesar and against Rome, there is now a king that is coming that is going to take out, in their minds, Rome doesn't always work out the way they think it is, but that's kind of the, what was mentioned here. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, now we're going to get to what they said in a second. This, this host, this is important, is, is not only do we talk about the emperor, we also talked about the fact that he had this army that he was given military power at this point in time. God comes in with this angel, and he says, with this angel was a multitude of heavenly hosts. And if you've grown up in church, uh, you've probably seen the pictures, and it's all these white guys with blonde hair with like these wings kind of standing around, and it's glowing, and this whole thing. And there's probably a couple, 20, maybe 30 kind of host kind of deal kind of hanging out in the sky, and, and, and they're all, you know, glowing and that's, that, that may be, I don't think that's exactly what we see here, because when he uses the word host here, he's talking about a military term. And this military term for host was that there was a, an army that was vastly larger than we can imagine. The only thing I could go to was Lord of the Rings, and I know this is bad, but the only thing I could go to as far as like the, the, the size of the army possible was in the, the film on the five armies when all of them kind of come together and each of them, one of them is cresting the hill. Um, I was going to play the video. I'm like, nah, there's kind of some weird stuff. But, um, but as you see them cresting the hill, there's like, hundreds and thousands of them like lining up on this hill and all of them are to the hilt 
dressed in military armor and spears, and, and, and it's, it's a show of force. And so when we hear that there was a heavenly host, this is like a military this is a huge number of military-type things, people walking in unison, filling up the entire sky. It's, it's the only equivalent I had was, if you've been outside in the summer where, where you see kind of like, um, it's normally at sunset, uh, where all these little clouds start to form, and there's like hundreds of them. You know what I mean? And it looks like just kind of like cotton all over the place. And they're just like layers and, la- and there's just so many. And there's breaks in the clouds, but you just see them all over the place as they kind of fill the sky. That's the closest I can come to probably what happened that night where there was just, the sky was just filled with all these angelic military figures standing at attention. And then if that's not enough to frighten you and scare you and be like, oh my word, this is, this is our doom and demise because all these guys are military in nature and they are coming here and they're loud and they're glowing and they're in the sky and this is not good. As military hosts, this army then starts to say something and they say something in unison. And here is the statement that they declare, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's the ESV version. And in each different translation, it may sound a little differently. So for the NIV, it's probably closer to what they actually meant. And it goes like this, glory to God in the highest and peace to those on whom his favor rests. Or the NLT says, peace on earth to those with whom he is pleased. And then where we get the goodwill is actually from the King James. And the King James says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. And then the CSB and peace on earth to people whom he favors. And so we're going to get into the goodwill in just a second, but I want to first focus on the peace. And before we even get to peace, let me take another step back and go into this glory to God in the highest. So first off, he says, glory to God in the highest. This pronouncement of glory to God is one of victory, one of conquering. A military is giving the announcement. This is not, again, this is not white, glowy, blonde guys. This, this is like full army power, and they're all announcing. And this is not like, if you guys could just kind of listen and possibly pay attention, I think you want to hear this. This is like full-on military announcement of We have and serve a glorious king. Glory to God in the highest. In other words, this king has defeated not only this world, this this king is ruling in another world. The pronouncement is not some mystic, ethereal, unexplainable union between heaven and earth that we may sing about. This pronouncement is a celebration and a declaration of two sovereign acts of the all-powerful God. This is what they were declaring that night. One, First, in heaven, that he is the, mo- the highest and most powerful name in heaven. His power is unmatched and to be feared. Glory to God in the highest. In other words, he is the name above all other names in the, in the heavenlies. There is no other name that matches it. There is no other name that comes close. When his name is mentioned, there is power. When his name is mentioned, there is fear because of the power that comes with it. When God's name is mentioned in the heavenlies, there is a response. And typically that response is hitting their knees. Because he's bigger, stronger than we ever give him power, credit for. The highest, most powerful name in heaven is first declared. And declared by military. In other words, they're all saying the same thing. We serve under one general, and that is God. We are all submissive to him. 
Second, and at the same time, this is not like two separate acts, this is at the same time, there is peace on earth. Peace has come. And again, this is not just to give us a great phrase for Christmas season. This is a note that this is a victory and a power that meets our world with something we've never seen before. A military of power and might, a heavenly army declaring, we have won, our king has won. Christ comes to this planet saying, God is saying the same thing. We, he has won, and there will be peace for those with whom he is well pleased. And we're going to get to that in a second. Okay, so one, victory in heaven, peace on earth, declared greatly by God himself. So, if that is true, let's just ask the question. If that's true, then why do we still have all these things happening around the world? Why are, since, since Christ's death, burial, resurrection till now, why has our country not improved? Why has there been very little as far as peace on earth? We've still had world wars. We've still had civil wars. We're still in a, somewhat say, say, are saying now a cold war. There's still a lot of violence and things happening in our world. So you say that, that's great. Okay, good for you. Uh, that doesn't translate into my everyday life. Because if that's true, then why do we still have what we have today? Africa is still a bloody mess with Islamic terrorism. That's just been as of last week. Haiti in the midst of yet another bloody battle with itself. We're, we're playing politics here in the United States while evil is still rampant and shootings and murders and all these kind of things that are still happening today. Where is this peace? What is this peace? And so let me explain what this peace is when we look at it from a biblical perspective and see if this kind of makes sense to where we can look at it moving forward. So first off, it's vital to understand how Luke and the writers of the Bible offer and define this word peace. Peace was a Hebrew word that was translated into Greek. In the Hebrew, it's known as shalom. And in the Greek, it's, it's irene, which is kind of fun. Now you can walk out and be like, irene, irene to you, irene. And they'll be like, whoa, wow, you, what church did you go to? Let me not go there. Um, but peace, right? Peace on earth is, is this word that was in Hebrew called shalom. It translated here, it is the word irene. And this shalom is not a absence of conflict or a lack of war. That's not what this peace means. I think when we see it today, we think, well, that's exactly what peace is. Peace treaties, peace agreements, no wars. And we've seen how well all those peace treaties go. Um, we, there's, there's no war and there's no lack of any kind of thing. Like that, that, that's what peace is. To the Hebrew people and to those who heard this as a Jewish people, they would understand peace maybe a little bit differently. Let me offer this to you. It is not the absence of conflict, but a wholeness and steadiness in the midst of it. In other words, to the Hebrew people, when they heard the word shalom, it was not just this thing of there's lack of conflict. It was in the midst of this conflict there is a possibility and hope that there is a restoration and a, a bringing together and a wholeness, a completeness that would come back together and replace whatever that conflict is with wholeness. In other words, let me say it like this. If there was a fight or an agreement, if there was ever to be shalom, it was to replace the conflict and put within that conflict, replace it with something better, which is shalom, and, and replace it with this something that would be peace, that would be a wholeness, a restoration. In many visual uh, 
circle, in visual ways, it would be as if it was a, a perfect circle. Or if it was a uh, visual, it would be like a wall, as mentioned in the Old Testament. That there's a, it's like a wall that was perfectly built so that there's no gaps and zero holes in it. And everything is perfectly aligned and it's complete and it's whole. And that's the idea of shalom, this idea of peace on earth. And here's the reality for us today. Life is complex And when anything gets out of order in our lives, and it does, and it will get out of peace or out of shalom or out of arene, when it gets out of peace, wholeness breaks down. Shalom will start to break down. And when that starts to happen, we tend, as human beings, we tend to just kind of freak out. When we don't have control, when we don't have restoration, when our lives are kind of in shambles, we kind of tend to freak out and we try to figure out how to fix it. God says, I've already shown you how to fix it because the shalom that he promised in the Old Testament was promised through their prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, 6 to 7. You read this, we read this almost every Christmas. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And here's the deal, Prince of Shalom, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. This is important. You want to highlight that word zeal too. We're going to see zeal here as well in this pronouncement. But the first thing we see in this pronouncement is there was a peace that was promised in Isaiah to a people, and then it's confirmed in the words of Jesus in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In other words, don't let your hearts be troubled, don't let them be afraid, because peace I will leave, my peace I will give to you. This arene or this shalom, this, this peace, this, this wholeness, this in the midst of life's complexities, there will be a peace that I offer to you and leave with you and give to you. I will restore relationships so that there's no gaps. I'll restore the complexities of our lives so that it becomes a whole peace again. And we look at this, we're like, well, how does that even make sense? How how does that work? I'm glad you asked. Come next week. Um, For now, we're going to continue on. Peace is this shalom and this idea of restoration and wholeness. And then they use this other word called goodwill. And uh, I'm not going to give you the Greek because it's kind of a weird one. Well, it's up there, so you can try and pronounce that. Iokides, you can kind of make it up as you go. Uh, you can go Iodikaios. You can do whatever you want. Um, uh, it's, I don't know if it's right or not. But anyway, Iodikaios is good pleasure. It's this Greek word that means that there is a joy, a zeal in what is happening. It's used in Luke chapter 3 in reference to God taking good pleasure in Jesus. So think of your kids Think of how much pleasure and joy you have in them. Well, I don't know if that's true this week, but hopefully this week, there's a genuine just joy and excitement. I, it, it, imagine it's, the, it's I've, I've talked to those who, you know, maybe they're out of town and they're coming back in town and 
I haven't seen him in a while. And there's this just, just joy and anticipation of like, man, I just can't wait to see him. Or I just can't wait to, to take them out. And I just can't wait to hang out with them. And so I've, I've been doing um, some dates this week with, with my girls. And there's this, just an anticipation of like, man, I just can't wait to go out another day with them and to hang out. And, and, and there's just a pleasure in, in a relationship that's there. That's kind of the Luke 3 reference from God to Jesus. And in Luke 10, this same word of good pleasure is also directed towards the disciples. He says, God has given this good pleasure to Jesus. It's this, it's this pleasure that he's given to the disciples. And then here's the joy in Philippians chapter 2.13 and Ephesians 1.5. This good pleasure is directed through salvation toward us who believe. That's crazy. That God has this place in his heart for those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It says there's a place in God's heart where he just gets, he just gets giddy and emotional and, and just, you know, kind of that awkward kind of like, okay, enough. That's okay, we're good, right? He's just kind of like, I love you. I can't wait to hang out with you. This is awesome, right? Isn't this great? And we're like, eh, this is kind of, but God is not opposed to any of that in our, in our reaction to it, he is saying to us who have a relationship with him, I have good pleasure towards you. It makes me happy to give you salvation. It's the thing he loves to do. Isn't that crazy? It's the thing he loves to hand out more than anything. It's the thing he loves more than anything. I love to give this. It's a good pleasure for me to give this to you. And in this story, when it talks about the glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those whom he is pleased, it's basically offering, hey, when you accept my son who will come in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, when you accept him and when you walk through this life with him, it gives me so much pleasure to watch that happen. It makes me so excited when that happens. And this good pleasure is not only then directed at Christ, it's not just directed to the disciples, this good pleasure is directed towards you. And maybe this morning, that's all you needed to hear this morning. (laughs) I'm glad somebody's is, because most of my week, what's directed at me from my boss, from my spouse, from my kids, from whatever, is not good pleasure. And I could really use that in my world. And here's the reality that God says it gives him pleasure to offer to you salvation. And he says this peace, this this wholeness gets lived out in the lives of those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because when he says all people, he's offering it to all people. But this peace that he promises and this good pleasure is for those who have a relationship, a, 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 a full faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, when you have that, we're going to see this throughout the next couple of weeks, how it gets played out. God says it, Christ says it, Paul in his letters, Peter says it. There's these, these comments again and again and again that when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is a peace that only he can give. And we're going to see how that gets played out next week in our emotions. And how do we say no to our emotions when they're out of control? And how do we let them be whole in that peace? We're going to look after that. How do, how do we have wholeness and peace with those that are outside of the church? And, and how do we do that well? And then we're going to look at those inside the church. And how do we have peace with those inside the church? How is there a wholeness and restoration of relationships that happens inside the church? And so that's where we're going to head over the next couple of weeks. And like I said this morning, it's just to define this idea of peace and goodwill 
and the fact that we serve a God who has conquered everything, whose highest name is in heaven. And here's the juxtaposition that we're stuck with. We serve a God who is reigning in heaven, who is a name that is feared. And yet everywhere we look around us, that name is not revered and there's not power and there's not miracles happening every single day. And so how does that work out? And so I want to close with this. And this is actually where the sermon series kind of started way back this summer uh, when I was kind of looking at what we were going to do for Christmas. And um, here's, here's what's interesting. I was drawn to this hymn, and we're not going to sing the hymn, but I want to at least give you some background because I thought it was interesting because the year was 1863. And in 1863, an 18-year-old named Charles Applewood Longfellow walked out of his family's house in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and unbeknownst to his family, boarded a train for Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C., and traveled over 400 miles across the eastern seaboard in order to join President Lincoln's Union Army to fight in the Civil War. Can you imagine that? Where's your kid? Uh, He just hopped a train to go to war at 18. So at 18, this father loses his son uh, because he's now gone out to fight uh, in this war. So Charles... Uh, was the oldest of six children, born to Fanny Elizabeth Appleton, and who you see there with a the great beard and hair is uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. This celebra- celebrated literary, literary critic and poet uh, was father of these um, six children and this wife named um, Fanny Elizabeth. Charles had five younger siblings, a brother aged 17, and three sisters, 13, 10, 8, and another one unfortunately, who had died as an infant. And so imagine that part of your family. And so you've got that history in your life. And you're like, man, if anybody knows grief, it's probably some of these guys. Well, less than two years earlier, less than two years of Charles leaving to go to war, Henry um, is awoken from a nap to one of the worst things you could ever experience. He's awoken from his nap when his wife has tragically gotten too close to the fire. And as she got close to the fire, her dress caught on fire. And as it's, the flames are going up, her husband awakes from a nap, tries to extinguish the flames, but he could not. First with a rug and then with his own body, he tries to put out the flames, but she had already suffered severe burns and she dies the next morning, July 10th, 1861. And Henry Longfellow's facial burns were severe enough that he was unable even to attend his own wife's funeral, and he would then grow that beard to hide his burned face, and at times feared that he would be sent to an asylum on account of his grief. Imagine that. You lose your wife, you lose your your infant, and then two years later, you lose your 18-year-old son who decides, I'm just going to go to war against my father's wishes. And so as he goes to war, the story goes that he uh, ends up in uh, 1868, he ends up getting shot in battle. After participating on the fringe of the battle in Virginia, April 30th to May 6th, 1863, his son fell ill with typhoid fever and was sent home to recover. This is after he had been shot. He rejoined his unit, having missed the Battle of Gettysburg. And while dining at his home on December 1st, 1863, the father, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, received a telegram that his son had been severely wounded four days earlier. And then he says that on November 27, 1863, while involved in a skirmish during a battle on the Mine Run campaign, Charlie was shot through the left shoulder with the bullet exiting out the right shoulder blade, crawling across his body, and Charlie avoided being paralyzed by less than an inch. 
He was then carried into New Hope Church, Orange County, Virginia, and then transported to Rapadian River. Charlie's father and younger brother, Ernest, earnestly sent out for Washington, D.C., arriving on December 3rd, and Charlie arrived by train on December 5th. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was alarmed when informed by the Army surgeon that his son's wound was very serious in the paralysis man sure ensue. Three surgeons gave a more favorable uh, report that evening, suggesting a recovery that would require him to be along and healing at least six months. And then here's the story. On Christmas Day, 1863, Longfellow, a 57-year-old widowed father of six children, the oldest of which he had, the oldest of which had been nearly paralyzed as his country fought at a war with itself, wrote a poem seeking to capture the dynamic and dissonance in his own heart and the world he observes around him. He heard the bells that December day in the singing of peace on earth. But as he observed the world of injustice and violence that seemed to mock the truthfulness of this optimistic outlook, the theme of listening recurred throughout the poem, eventually leading to a settled and confident hope, even in the midst of bleak despair. And so as he's sitting there, the story is this, that he's hearing these Christmas things and everybody's joyful and he's there to see his paralyzed, almost paralyzed son in a a country that's at war. And he's like, these are not the same. How can we celebrate this thing of Christmas and joy and peace and everybody's happy and putting on a face and yet our country is in disrepair? And he writes a hymn that is probably one of the most honest hymns you could ever sing in church. And he says this in the hymn, Uh, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, and it goes like this. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then peel the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so as he he sees this, he is wrestling with with it like we will over the next couple weeks. How can we have peace on earth, goodwill to men when we see so much around us and yet in confidence declare with the angels that God is not dead nor doth he sleep? The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so let me give you a couple questions to wrestle through this week as we head into the series. One, how do you define peace? What, what is it to you? What, what, how would you explain it to someone? How, what is that definition you would give? And, and then secondly, how does it reflect the wholeness mentioned here in the word shalom? How do, they, how do those two work together? Second, what areas of your life seem fractured right now? If we said that peace is this idea of wholeness and completeness, and it, it is best seen when things are fractured and our lives are living fractured, what areas of your life seem fractured right now? Or let me put it another way, what areas of your life seem void of peace. And lastly, how can you use this season to bring wholeness to those around you? Just some questions to kind of wrestle through. And we're going to kind of put that out in the next couple of weeks, but I want to kind of just start with saying, you serve a God who is on high, glory to God in the highest, offering us this restorative wholeness peace in the midst of a world that is broken and messed up. And in the midst of it, he says, there is still a joy and a pleasing in him working in our lives. And we're going to see how all that gets worked out as we continue. As we close, um, I want to kind of let us, uh, have Rich lead us in a song that I think is going to be kind of fitting for this series. And uh, this song is a little more uh, upbeat, um, and I I wanted it that way, because it's this, uh, the, the chorus is taken directly out of the New Testament. And the chorus is basically saying that, they, that what we have right here, right now, is light and momentary trials for Corinthians. 
And, and these light and momentary trials are producing within us a weight of glory, he says. And in this song, I think it's just a great testament to say, you know what, whatever my last months have been, and for many of you, your months of last month and the month before have been really, really crazy and hard and difficult. And I want us just to have an opportunity to respond and say, you know what, even in the midst of them, I realize that these trials that I'm going through, whatever they are, are light and are momentary, and they're producing something. And I thought it'd be good to kind of announce that, declare that together as a church body as we jump into this series. So learn this with us as we sing it out, and uh, we'll close with it.